Spirits podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 310, which I hear is all about the Tooth Fairy? It is, Amanda. I'm going to start this off right away. Amanda, what were your childhood memories of the Tooth Fairy? Uh, Julia, it's that the Tooth Fairy gave me quarters, and I have friends who got 20s. What? <laughs> or fives at least. There was a big distinction in my mind between people who got dollar bills and people who got change. And I remember being old enough to go to school and be like, wait, you got... You got $10 from the Tooth Fairy that you're spending on erasers shaped like fruit at the school store? Uh, and I was like, what What gives? And I remember my parents being like, Tooth Fairy, uh, we have a different Tooth Fairy. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. And it was a an early representation of class, Julia, that I remember. There you go. I remember my parents definitely did this, but I also don't remember the specifics of it. Like, I don't remember how much I ever got from the Tooth Fairy or anything like that. What I do remember is that when my dog was a puppy and he started losing his teeth, I asked my mom if the Tooth Fairy would come and give him money. And my mom was like, girl, no, why Why would that happen? <laughs> Dogs can't use money, four-year-old child. Yeah. What did I know? I didn't Aww. know. I just, this is my first time having a dog and I lost teeth. So, and he lost teeth. Why wouldn't he also get a visit from the Tooth Fairy? Oh, that's so cute. I um, I also remember that when I moved out to college, my mom gave me a Ziploc bag of my own baby teeth. Okay. Interesting. And I said, Mom, I don't want this. And she said, uh-oh, I put it in the box. <laughs> well, there were other options that she could have done with those teeth, which we'll talk a little bit about later on in this episode. Oh, really? I can't wait to hear. I'll have to call her up and ask her why she didn't, I don't know, turn them into like a a candle or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, so to get us started, for listeners who did not grow up with the Tooth Fairy, either because your family didn't participate in this tradition or because it's just not a part of your culture, here is the basic premise slash myth of the Tooth Fairy. When children lose their baby teeth, they put them under their pillow, and then while they are sleeping, the Tooth Fairy visits and takes their baby teeth and replaces them, usually with money, but I also know that some families would do like little toys or other kind of gifts like that. Cute. Yeah. Which I feel like that's probably better than just giving your child quarters or $20 bills. Yeah. Yeah. No. Look, I, I think we might have had like a little like a plastic thing that the tooth goes in to like, yes, you know, keep it there for the tooth fairy. So there wasn't like a bloody tooth under your pillow, uh, which makes sense. Yeah. I don't think I got any like treats or anything. I didn't remember the little tooth thing until you just said that. I'm like, yes, now I remember exactly what you're talking about. I know. Where did parents get that? I mean, it couldn't have been at a toy store. Maybe your dentist would give it to parents on the oh, sly. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, that'd be good. Like when they knew that like, oh, your teeth were going to start coming out sure. soon. They'd be like, oh, huh, before you leave, one of these little tooth guys. <laughs> at least in the United States, this ritual is repeated every time a child loses a new tooth. And of course, the specifics change from household to household, like the amount of money, as you pointed out. But the tooth fairy might also like leave a note or might not. Additionally, what the tooth fairy looks like differs from household to household and from culture to culture, but we'll dig into that a little bit later in the episode. Right on. In your mind, what does the tooth fairy look like to you? Julia, the tooth fairy looks like Art LaFleur, the actor from uh, The Sandlot and Field of Dreams who played the tooth fairy in the Santa Claus movies. Amazing. Yep. I mean, as a kid, I pictured a sort of like, you know, garden style fairy, you know, yes. like a skinny like woman with, you know, butterfly wings, basically. Um, but I was so tickled by that depiction of the tooth fairy that it's just canonical for me now. For mine, it was like a blue version of Tinkerbell. That's Ooh, what yeah, I pictured. That's good. Yeah, that's good. 
So before we get into the full episode, I want to shout out to our researcher, Sally, for this episode idea. It was a great idea. I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, Sally also pointed out that a lot of research that we have on the tooth fairy as a cultural phenomenon and mythos was done by a professor at Northwestern University named Dr. Rosemary Wells. When she taught at Northwestern, it was in their now defunct dental hygiene program, even though she also had a PhD in English literature, which is an interesting dichotomy of dental medicine and literature. So it kind of makes it unsurprising that she was kind of fascinated and dedicated her life to researching the tooth fairy. That's really interesting because I bet dentists and dental hygienists get a lot of questions about the tooth fairy from kids and have to like make small talk about it. Like, oh, the tooth fairy might be visiting you soon. You know, it's a I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's it's a way to kind of make kids not as scared about changes to their body. And I imagine that it makes a lot of sense to cover that in school. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really super interesting because there's also a lot of traditions and mythos and folklore around teeth. So to study it as a English literature professor is also very interesting as well. That's awesome. Dr. Rosemary Wells is so fascinating. She also, in her life, turned her split-level ranch home in the suburbs of Chicago into a tooth fairy museum, which she opened in 1993 and it closed away when she passed away in 2000. The museum itself contained more than 100 tooth fairy dolls, about 700 drawings from kids, also included books, pillows, paintings, sculptures, and boxes designed to hold baby teeth as part of its collection. That is fascinating. I hope that there are some archives of the collection somewhere or like photos of the of the space. I have to look and see. If I do find them, I will link them for our patrons in our director's commentary notes and you yeah. guys can check those out. Oh my God, that's so interesting. But I did find one or two photos of, I think, the exterior of the house online on like a now defunct museum website. So I'll have to share it. (laughs) My childhood dentist was in a split level home in uh, our town. So Mm -hmm. that makes total sense to me to have uh, either a dentist office or a museum of the tooth fairy in the basement of the house where Dr. Napolin lives. Yeah, I think you and I, at least for the first couple years of our lives, definitely had the same dentist because I remember that house. Oh, yeah, yeah. As I mentioned before, uh, Dr. Wells was not only a museum curator, but a researcher as well, and did a series of surveys and studies to try to trace the rise of the tooth fairy mythos in the United States. In 1983, she conducted a study that found that 97% of parents felt positively about the tooth fairy and planned to pass down the tradition to their children. 74% of those felt the tooth fairy was a woman, while 12% believed that the tooth fairy was neither male nor female, and 8% believed the tooth fairy could either be male or female. Interesting. So non-binary tooth fairy. That's what I'm coming from this. Also, people uh, people are way more able to hold the idea of ambiguous or uh, non-binary gender in their minds than they admit that they are. Yes, especially in 1983. Mm-hmm. So we know from Dr. Wells's research that this was a tradition that many parents, specifically in the United States, wanted to pass down to their kids. But where did it come from, Amanda? Any guesses? You know what, Julia? I would love to know. I would love to know. Is this a situation where this was invented by like the toothpaste lobby? It's not. Oh, okay. I will give you that. It's not a toothpaste lobby thing. That that would like a like a Victorian tooth powder ad in the era of like absinthe fairies. That really would have warmed my heart. But no, I have no idea. I mean, I imagine like you're saying, there's a ton of mythos around teeth. Anytime that there are, you know, whether it's hair, teeth, blood, any kind of fluid or part of a body is imbued with something, whether it's, you know, kind of 
good or bad energy or the ability to kind of get close to you or perform a spell or something on a person, you know, these are kind of like our fundamental ingredients. And so it's not like you're going to lose a thing you've been staring at in the mirror for, you know, the first eight years of your life and be like, Meh, check that in the trash. <laughs> so I have no idea, but it makes all the sense in the world that there is mythos around this. Yes, of course. In terms of the origins of the tooth fairy, it's both a very ancient practice, but also in a lot of ways a fairly new one, especially in terms of the way that it is used and viewed in the United States. Talking about the way, way back, and also in a callback to our liminality episode, most cultures have some sort of ritual about the loss of baby teeth as a sign of growing up. Uh, however, a lot of these are not like a huge momentous occasions, but rather some of them are rituals that are more about encouraging the new teeth to look or grow a certain way, which uh, makes sense. I, yeah, I remember my siblings end with me being like, oh, we'll see how the baby teeth come out. We'll see how the adult teeth come in. We'll see about orthodontia. Like, we got to see how it turns out. Exactly. So there was some research done by B.R. Townen, who was a mid-century researcher whose study focused both on oral tradition in the folkloric sense and oral tradition in the dentistry sense. But I'm <laughs> in some published research from the 1960s, he categorized these tooth rituals into nine basic categories of what was done with the tooth. So here's the list. It's nine different things. The tooth was thrown into the sun, metaphorically, not like mm, literally. Wow. The tooth was thrown into the fire. The tooth was thrown between the legs. The tooth was thrown onto or over the roof of the house, often with an invocation to some animal or individual. Sure. The tooth was placed in a mouse hole near the stove or hearth or offered to another animal. The tooth was buried. The tooth was hidden where animals could not get to it. Uh-huh. The tooth was placed in a tree or on a wall. Or finally, the tooth was swallowed by the mother, child, or an animal. Mm. So when I was asking about things that your mom could have done with your teeth instead of handing them back to you. Yeah. Your mom could have just reabsorbed the nutrients she gave you in birth by swallowing your teeth. <laughs> That's very possible. We could have also flushed it down the toilet like we did with our, uh, our our goldfish that passed away. Or we're a very beach-centered household, as we've talked a lot about. And so I feel like casting them into the ocean uh, would have been our version of that ritual, potentially. I do remember one of my younger twin siblings swallowed some of their baby teeth by mistake, which, you know, happens. Yeah. And my parents were so mad. Um, but I should have been like, listen, it's an ancient ritual. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you mad about that? It'll either pass or dissolve. It'll be fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Baby teeth are not like super sharp, no, like no. puppy teeth. You know what I mean? So no, I didn't know puppies lost their teeth, but that makes total, total sense. Yeah. It's very cute. No. So besides your mom not swallowing your baby teeth, which <laughs> I really like this idea of like you're reabsorbing the nutrients, you know? <laughs> yeah. There are some more specific examples that are included in this research, such as in medieval Europe, baby teeth were burned in the fire so that witches couldn't get them and use them as part of their magic in order to manipulate people. There it is. Makes sense. There it is. As you said, yep. a lot of our body parts are imbued with magic and folklore. So, of course, you would want to get rid of teeth so that people can't use them. Mm -hmm. There is another European myth that if the teeth weren't burned, then a person would be doomed in their afterlife to search for their baby teeth, unable to rest until they were found. I'm 
sounds brutal. We, we, we shed like thousands of skin cells a day. Yeah. But apparently teeth more important than our skin cells. I mean, there are fewer of them. That is true. That's true. You notice it more when you lose a tooth, for sure. You notice it more and uh, there's not more where that came from. Like I learned every time I go to the dentist and they're like, ma'am, you are anxiously brushing your gums too hard and that shit does not grow back very easily. And I'm like, oh, oh God. You're like, oh, good point. Uh. <laughs> this, this is aging. Oh God. So there's also a Balkan ritual described in 1928 that involves burying the first lost tooth a child has within a tree. It is specifically has to be done by an old woman or the matriarch of the family. And then it is covered with a peg in the tree. And this was said to ensure that the child would never suffer a toothache. Oh, I also like that where you can look at the, you know, look at a tree. There was a tree in my home growing up next to our driveway that my uncle planted either the year I was born or the year I turned one or something. And the tree grew a lot. And as I was growing, the tree was like 10, 15 years old and um, it grew too much. And it was a, a pain when parking the car. And so my parents would be like, fucking Amanda's tree, <laughs> two in the driveway again. God damn it, Amanda's tree. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's so funny. Also, I feel like in this tradition, if the child did suffer a toothache, they were like, we have to go check the tree and see if your tooth <laughs> is still in there, you know? God damn it, did a chipmunk get it? Yeah, fucking squirrels, really. So there's also a tradition in many East Asian countries like China and Japan, where when a tooth is lost from the lower jaw, the tooth is then thrown on the roof, while if it's lost from the upper jaw, it is put in the floor or even below that, with the idea that the new tooth is being pulled towards the old tooth and would grow in quicker and straight. Tight. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really cool, especially as someone who's like, I haven't gotten my wisdom teeth removed because they're not bad yet, but one of them did come in like kind of sideways and the yeah. dentist's like, we should do something about that. He's like, does it hurt? I'm like, no. And he's like, okay, never mind then. <laughs> so you want your teeth to come in straight and comfortable. Perhaps the closest to what would become the tooth fairy was a Northern European tradition that tied back to the poetic Edda. So this was the tradition of the tooth fee, which was paid when a child lost their first tooth. First referenced in the sayings of Grimnir, the god Freyr was given Alfheim, the land of the elves, by the gods as his tooth fee, or in some translations, tooth gift. Tooth F-E-E? -E? Yes. Or is it, does it just sound like the, oh. The fee that you pay to someone when they lose their tooth. Interesting. Yeah. You were saying kids got $20 bills in elementary school. Rayer got an entire <laughs> land of elves. So it makes sense, too, because it's like something that's fairly traumatic. Like, you know, for lots of kids, it's not pleasant to lose your teeth. Yeah. I enjoyed when they were gone because I so didn't enjoy the ambiguity of like not being sure when it was coming out, you know? Yes. And I felt that way when, when my period started. And I was like, the world should stop for me. Like the world should both not acknowledge this has happened and also like give me gifts because this sucks. And so I like this idea of, you know, kids having to go through, you know, increasingly traumatic things as they as they get older. And, you know, you should be given a fee. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're like, you know what? That's right. Life's hard. Maybe I should get paid for it. <laughs> exactly. So, Amanda, that kind of brings us to the question as to where do we get this idea of a modern tooth fairy that came and took teeth and then left a little gift behind, right? So we're going to explore the oral traditions. I just keep, I love saying oral traditions. <laughs> oral traditions that led to our modern tooth fairy. But first, let's go grab a refill. Let's do it. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Refill. I wanted to take a moment to thank our newest patron, Maya. I am so glad that you got the memo that our Patreon is now charging you monthly. That means when you sign up, your tier is exactly what you'll pay each month. We used to charge per episode because that's what Patreon was like when we started way back when. And now we get to give you a simpler way to sign up, which is pay four bucks a month, eight bucks a month, whatever you want, and also more tools for us, including, by the way, annual memberships. So now if you want to sign up for an annual plan at a 10% discount or gift one to a friend, it is a great time to do it. It's very easy to do and you get a year of support for spirits and a year of cool benefits like uh, tarot drawings, video advice podcasts with Julia and me, bonus episodes of Your Urban Legends for every single patron, and more and more and more. You gotta check it out. Go to patreon.com slash spirits podcast. And gotta thank our supporting producer level patrons, Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Daisy, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Iron Havoc, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica Stewart, Measlekins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Lake, Captain Jonathan, Malachi Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, Spooky Lore, and Zazie. And those legend level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi Yokai, Kakuta Maculata, Clara, Ginger Spurs Boy, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and BME Up Scotty. Again, that's patreon.com slash spirits podcast. Today, I've been listening to a bunch of Wisdom Continuum, which is a wonderful podcast hosted by Leah and Daniel Lem. They are talking all about Native futures. They are talking all about how Native communities and Indigenous folks have the wisdom that we need for better futures now. That is why it is called Wisdom Continuum, because it has always existed and will always exist. It is a lovely podcast. The subtitle is Native Innovations for Generations, and that is, I think, what the future needs more of. So if you want to listen to Wisdom Continuum, just look it up in the podcast app you're using now. It's fabulous. Go for it. And if you are in the mood to check out another Multitude show, I gotta recommend Next Stop. This is an audio sitcom exploring that time in your mid to late 20s when everyone is changing around you and you're a little bit worried that you might not catch up across its 10 episode first season, which is all available for you to marathon now. Next Stop follows three roommates trials through work, friendships, relationships, relationships, and more. And no matter what they go through, they grow together, which I think is so wonderful. For anyone who grew up watching classic sitcoms and want that kind of comfort, this is a fabulous one that is solidly 21st century. It gives you something to laugh at without punching down. It was written and created by Eric Silver, directed and edited by Brandon Grugel, executive produced by me, and casted and assistant directed by Julia. So search for Next Stop in your podcast app or go to nextstopshow.com. I have great news for you, which is that uh, one, this podcast is sponsored by Brooklyn, and and two, that all of their home essentials are on sale for the Black Friday, Cyber Monday holiday season. Whether you are upgrading something for yourself or getting gifts ahead of time, I have to recommend Brooklinen. I love Brooklinen. I love my buttery soft. Every time somebody comes over to stay in our guest bedroom, they're like, holy shit, these sheets are actually really good. And I'm like, yes, they are. So this sale moment is a very good time to commit to that comfort because every single bit of it is on sale. You actually also can now take part in the Brooklinen rewards program, which means you get points for your purchases along with free shipping and exclusive deals. We recently got a uh, Brooklinen comforter on our wedding registry, and I shouldn't be surprised but good God, it's good. Uh, And I am promptly replacing the other comforters in our house as well. Make your holidays even happier with help from the internet's favorite, Brooklinen. Their Black Friday Cyber Monday sale is only for a limited time and the deals don't get better. If you happen to have missed out, by the way, use promo code SPIRITS. Visit brooklinen.com and get $20 off plus free shipping on orders of $100 or more with code SPIRITS. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. 
we are also sponsored by Calm. And I wonder if while I'm reading this ad, you can do a simple breathing exercise. All right, let's do it together. I'm going to breathe in through your nose. And then exhale through your mouth. Don't you feel calmer already? I genuinely love that Calm encourages us to do this in our ads because even a few moments during your day, my day, our day, to calm down, to center yourself, to take an intentional breath is amazing. And reducing stress and anxiety through guided meditations, music tracks, and sleep stories is Calm's whole thing. They even now have daily movement sessions as well, designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds, myself included. Whenever I'm falling asleep, you know I'm listening to a sleep story all about trains. And for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. Go to calm.com slash spirits for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash spirits. And finally, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I often find myself wondering, gosh, I feel like I have you know, questions and problems and things that I find challenging that surely other people have found challenging in the past. And maybe just maybe if I ask them for advice or if I like put in this cheat code or I read this thing, it would suddenly get all unveiled to me. And I just wish that my life came with a user manual and my brain and my body and my memories and all of that stuff. I sometimes feel stuck and that is completely normal. And it's something I talk about in therapy. And because I really appreciate when I can do therapy in a way that's flexible, whether that means doing phones sometimes, video others, corresponding just in the app sometimes, and meeting with my therapist at different times each week because my schedule is pretty likely to change. I love that I can do that easily and securely through BetterHelp. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It really couldn't be simpler. No more waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. Amanda, while not exactly inspired by the Tooth Fairy itself, I did find a great fairy godmother-inspired cocktail that sounded really up my alley. It's from a website called The Moody Mixologist, and this cocktail has absinthe, elderflower liqueur, pineapple, lemon, and lime juice. And it's just like very floral and has like a little hint of sweetness, which is good because you won't have any unexpected visits from the Tooth Fairy after drinking too much of these. Exactly. No toothache. And I like how the absinthe fairy was on my mind. You really seeded that idea. <laughs> I did it. I did it. Unlike the fairy godmother, though, uh, whose oral traditions go fairly far back. Our tooth fairy started making appearances in American oral tradition only around the turn of the 20th century. Hmm. The first written reference to her that can be found was made in 1908 in an article from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, would you like me to read it to you? It is from the Practical Homekeeper's own page in the Chicago Sunday Tribune from 
September 27th, 1908. I would love nothing more. There is genuinely very little in the world I find more fun than reading old advice columns and housekeeping manuals. I love it. For some context, this was like a letter that was written in by one Lillian Brown, and it was submitted as advice for a practical housekeeper's own page. Here's the quote. Many a refractory child will allow a loose tooth to be removed if he knows about the tooth fairy. If he takes his little tooth and puts it under the pillow, when he goes to bed, the tooth fairy will come in the night and take it away, and in its place will leave some little gift. It is a nice plan for mothers who visit the five-cent counter and lay in a supply of articles to be used on such occasions. Mm. I love that. Like you've been saying, I really love this idea that this might have started as a parent who was just like, yes, I know it's scary to lose a tooth, but guess what happens when you do? <laughs> Stop being so upset, okay? It's fine. You get a present. Come on, it's worth it. Because it can. It can be dangerous. The kid could bite it. Like, it can be frustrating. And, you know, you want to be there for your kid and make them look forward to a thing that they have to do when it is scary and weird and has blood. Yeah, yeah. We're just like... Oh, no. Be careful. It's okay. It's okay. Everything's fine. And you get a little gift. Exactly. This feels like a real kind of elf on the shelf, you know, mench on the bench situation. That was the Jewish version that was on Shark Tank, where I thought my mom's mom, Grandma Jammy, made that up because she was like, you know what? Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, something's looking out. You got to behave. And that must have been so helpful as my grandma tried to run a household and, uh, you know, get ready for the holidays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember the little, I don't know if your either dentist or doctor's office would do that, but like the little like treasure chest that they would have with yes. full of little toys. So like you did a good job getting your shots and stuff here. Uh huh. Take a little treat home with you. Mine also had a arcade cabinet of Tetris in the mm-hmm. um, in the lobby, which was the thing I, the, my orthodontist specifically, which I really looked forward to. I was like, I'll, I'll get poked and prodded and have my, you know, like gum really hurt by these braces, but only if I get in a couple rounds of that good Tetris first. That's fair. I feel that. I feel that in my bones. So the next written record of the Tooth Fairy was from a 15-year-old girl, Nellie May Hans, who published a story called My Visit to Fairyland in St. Louis, Kentucky's Courier Journal in 1911. Oh my God, Nellie May. Nellie May crushing it. So the story begins, quote, When I was about six years of age, my aunt told me that if I would let her pull my tooth, she would tell the tooth fairy, in quotes, to come and get it and leave me a present instead. Yeah. That night, I wrapped up the tooth and put it under my pillow. After I had fallen asleep, the tooth fairy came over to my bed, picked up the tooth and said to me, Nellie Mae, would you like to go to fairyland with me? Ooh, I'm loving this fiction. I know. So not only are we getting mythos for the tooth fairy, we're getting some tooth fairy lore here. Yes. Also, Nellie Mae gets to go on a cool adventure to fairyland with the Tooth Fairy. So Alice in Wonderland vibes. I'm loving it. It's really, really good. And then the first written quote unquote appearance of her. So rather than these recounting of tales that we've been seeing in these past two options, seems to be from a 1927 playlet for children written by Esther Watkins Arnold. The only copy available is at Brown University, and it is described as, quote, a play about a fairy who collected the lost teeth of little boys and girls and left a coin or two behind. Oh, is a playlet a pamphlet with a play in it? Yes, but it was 
like only eight pages and for some reason there's still three acts to the eight pages it makes no goddamn sense <laughs> incredible well if any listeners work or attend brown check this out let us know take some pictures yes because it is not on the internet as far as I can tell. Not digitized, yeah. These are the first mentions of the Tooth Fairy, but the mystery remains as to how the existing traditions around marking the loss of a baby tooth with payment of a fee came to be associated with this at least kind of humanoid fairy image that became a part of American tradition, right? Right. So the likeliest path from tooth fee to tooth fairy seems to be two fairy tales that bridge the gap. So the first and perhaps the most likely bridge is the story of the Tooth Mouse. What? Tell me about him. So as we talked about earlier with the rituals around teeth, many cultures offered baby teeth to an animal. Oftentimes this animal was one with notoriously strong teeth in the hopes that a child's new teeth would grow in just as strong, right? Oh, interesting. So like because the mice have teeth strong enough to make their little mouse holes, uh, we are giving them an offering so my child will have teeth as strong as a mouse. Exactly. So for that reason, the mouse is often a recipient of baby teeth. Sometimes dogs as well, because dogs also like, you know, of they course. bite a lot of things, which also seems to be the origin of the popular fairy tale of the tooth mouse. In Spain, there was a story of El Ratoncito Perez, yeah. also known as the vain little mouse. Yeah. <laughs> so this was written by Louis Coloma, who was a Spanish writer who was commissioned by the Queen of Spain in 1894 to write stories for her son. So Coloma took the existing character of El Ratoncito Perez and wrote these stories, which were then published in 1902 publicly. Julia, I got to tell you, if I became like, you know, a leader, a president, a dictator, I was going to say billionaire, but I, you know, don't think it's ethical. But dictator makes the list. <laughs> yes, no, it does. I would simply use all my money to commission art. I love reading WPA stuff. I love when it's like, ah, yes, you know, the the crown's commission from the 1600s. And now we have like really interesting cultural artifacts that were well preserved because it was for the freaking monarch. I would simply do that constantly. Yes. So I 100% agree. Most money that's in excess should be then given to the arts. But that's besides the point. Yeah. Just write down the silly little stories you tell your kids and your friends, please. Exactly. Would you like a quick summary of the story so that we can see how this little mouse might have become the tooth fairy? Tell me that ratoncito, please. There was once a young king who one morning was eating his bread and milk and discovered that his tooth was beginning to wobble. There was a big fuss. The court doctors were all called and they agreed <laughs> that the king was beginning to change his teeth and that the loose one would need to be pulled. See. I love the idea of a like elaborate and expensive department of like all the best surgeons in the country are like, ah, yes, young sir is losing his baby teeth. <laughs> the young king, we must pull his tooth. Yeah. So they offered him laughing gas to calm him because, again, this was like almost 1900 at this point. Mm -hmm. But because the king was a brave young man, he refused it. The most senior doctor tied a bit of red silk to the tooth and then neatly pulled it out, finding that it was as round and as white as a little pearl. Oh my. See, the doctors could not agree on what would be done with the tooth, and the king's mother, the wise queen, who was very loyal to old customs, <laughs> who signs my paychecks, thank you, I love you. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> decided that the young king should write a polite little letter and put it with the tooth in an envelope under his pillow that night. 
night, for everyone knew that Perez the mouse would come to fetch the tooth and leave a lovely present in its place. Cute. So the young king did just that and went to bed early that night, insisting that all the lights be left on. He then placed the letter under his pillow and sat in bed, determined to meet Perez the mouse, Mm. even if he had to wait all night. Cute. Despite the fact that he tried to stay up, sleep soon took him. However, in the night, he felt something very soft tickling his forehead, and he awoke. When he did, he saw in front of him, standing on the pillow, a tiny little mouse in a straw hat and slippers and big gold spectacles with a little (gasps) red satchel slung across his back. I love him! All right, hold on. I have to send you a picture of this because Sally included it in the outline, and it is incredible. Hold on. Sally is crushing it. I love this so much. Ah! (laughs) I love him! Look at the tiny envelope! Look at his little hat. It's so cute! Oh, he has a sweet little hat with a little feather. Little feather? (laughs) How did he find such a small feather? What bird did it come from? I also like that he has a little sword, too. Like, he's a little mouseketeer. Oh, my God. So cute. Uh, So, yes, that is El Ratoncito Perez. He is adorable. I will link (laughs) it for our patrons in the show notes. I love him. So the little mouse, seeing that the little king was also awake, took off his hat and bowed. The mouse told the king about his life, about his wife and children, and what he got up to when he was not collecting teeth. And eventually, at the end of the night, hints to the king that it's late and he has more teeth to collect. And the king ends up going with him after being transformed himself into a mouse on his many adventures through the rest of the night. And that's what makes up most of the book. This is just the beginning of the book. Oh, my God. The dream. I love that. Isn't that so, so cute? Oh, goodness. I love it so much. Incredible. All of this to say, it has been theorized that the Tooth Fairy was inspired by the Tooth Mouse. However, in spreading to America, as it often does, things were muddled and the mouse was transformed instead into a fairy. Love it. However, there is also another theory that derives from an Italian story of the Marantega. So the Italian version of St. Nicholas is Befana, who is this gaunt and toothless crone who is kindly to children and gives presents to the deserving during the Christmas season. I know that. The Venetian version of Befana is Marantega, who not only gives gifts during the Christmas season, but also hands out gifts when children lose their teeth. I was going to say, when we were guessing about the origins, or when I was guessing and you knew about the origins of the Tooth Fairy, it must be related to Santa Claus in some way, which is what got me thinking about advertising and like this as a marketing campaign, given Coca-Cola and whatnot. Exactly. Not as far as that, but you're on the right track with it, certainly. So in the tradition of Manantega, A lost tooth is placed under the child's bed or under their pillow, and in the night, Marantega comes, thinking that the tooth is her own, takes it, and leaves a coin in exchange. Because she's toothless. She's like, oh, another tooth for me, and then puts it up in her mouth. (laughs) And pays, which is really nice. Yeah, of course. So obviously, this story is very similar to our Tooth Fairy, and it should be noted that occasionally, Tooth Fairy citations and translations use witch rather than fairy. So it is quite possible that this is just a mistranslation that came over from Italy to the United States. That's really interesting because a fairy and a witch in some ways couldn't be more different. Like I think that fairies are so often held up as youth and beauty and vigor and witches are so often depicted as, you know, old crones in that 
ancient and, you know, well-known to us dichotomy. So I think it's really fascinating that I'm sure there's lots of, you know, words that are very close. And obviously they're both, you know, magical, usually female figures. But I think that we would have, at least in the U.S., with our very puritanical distrust of witches and also anyone old, this would not be as kind of heartwarming and, you know, well distributed a myth if it were the tooth witch. Well, Amanda, that brings up a really interesting point, because I think that the Disney Corporation might have played a role in turning it from a witch to a fairy. Interesting. See, there is some kind of marketing lobby at work. Disney might have played a role in, while not originating the story of the Tooth Fairy, both popularizing and solidifying the image of it. They never do originate their stories, do they? They always just like decide on a version and then canonize that for all the generations to follow. And that's it. I got it. It is theorized by uh, Tad Tuleha in the article, The Tooth Fairy Perspectives on Money and Magic, that the image of the Tooth Fairy was helped along, quote, by the decade immediately preceding the proliferation of the Tooth Fairy costume saw the release of four feature films in which female pixies played a central role. In 1939, American children saw Billy Barnes as a shimmering Glinda the Good Witch of the North teach Judy Garland the true meaning of home. A year later, in the Disney version of Carlo Collodi's tale, the Blue Fairy taught Pinocchio about truth. Oh. In 1950, Disney Cinderella was rewarded for her selflessness by the fairy godmother, who worked magic with mice. And in 1953, the most pixie-like of all our fairies, Tinkerbell, was saved from death by the eternal boy Peter Pan. All of these films reached massive audiences. End quote. There you go. Man, Julia, the only problem with doing spirits is every academic article you mention, I desperately want to read. <laughs> I will link it for our <laughs> listeners. I promise. Yay. So it's also important to note that since this period of time where the image of the tooth fairy was solidified in the middle of the 20th century, it really has not changed all that much besides the amount of money or the type of gift that is left behind. Like actually, uh, Planet Money did a funny episode on how the amount of money on average left behind by the tooth fairy is a popular media indicator of how the economy is doing. There you go. That makes sense. So you're like, okay, so on average here, based on these people polled, the average is like $8 left to the tooth fairy, which shows, you know, people have a lot of excess money right now, you know. Yeah. Or mm, tooth fairy scaling back. We might want to start, uh, start tightening our belts, people. Exactly. Yeah. I really, really like that. They also like interviewed someone at the White House who also used that as an indicator. I'm like, wow, it goes all the way to the top, man. Yeah, that is that is really economics is such an interesting field. It is just kind of like watching and hoping like there's not a lot. It's really kind of like predicting how a big crowd will do. Like it, it's the same as trying to order catering for a party or when you're like building a stadium or a train and you're like, OK, well, most people will take the train, but some will drive and like they're probably going to want to use a bathroom. It's just like roller coaster tycoon. Like you're trying to place your bathrooms in trash cans where people will most need them. But sometimes uh, people do things that are irrational. And then you're like, oh, oh, oh. economics is wild. And I'm so glad I didn't study it in college because I had yeah. the option to. And I was like, you know what? No, <laughs> I don't think so. So, Amanda, at the end of the day, why is it that parents tell their children about the tooth fairy? Like, what does she represent? In my mind, uh, for modern American tooth fairy, she is still a means of easing and celebrating the transition from childhood to adulthood as it was originally. However, where early tooth traditions are about moving on from childhood, 
the American tradition kind of does both. It both allows a celebration of the transition from a childhood to adulthood, but also reinforces childhood innocence on the same level that like Christian children are told about Santa Claus, for example. So this kind of paternalistic deception is what like psychologists call it. I know it's kind of a hot topic for some people, especially new parents who are deciding whether or not to continue this tradition and those who consider it, quote unquote, lying to their children rather than a folkloric tradition or a myth. And I think it's also interesting because when we compare the older traditions with our modern ones, the older tradition is usually a one-off ritual that is done only for the first tooth loss. While for the American tradition, each tooth is offered up to the tooth fairy until all the teeth are paid for or until the child stops believing in fairies. Yeah. And I also remember some instances where I would lose a few in a week and my parents had me save it up because they're like, let's save the tooth fairy a trip. Uh, yes. Let's save it all up and then, and then they'll do it one time. Or the tooth fairy missed it one night and then later I heard my parents arguing and they're like, ah, it must have been too busy that night. Lots of kids losing their teeth. Let's move on. Yeah. It is the season for children losing right. their teeth. <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a really good question. And, you know, at first I certainly for me as a kid, it was a way to have a kind of reward for a necessary but a little bit kind of brutal of a task. Mm -hmm. My parents were also, you know, it's it's almost like another growing up ritual where, you know, you get potty trained, you start taking baths on your own or showers on your own, you know, all these kinds of steps. And one of them was going from my parents pulling my baby teeth to me doing it mm -hmm. um, and wanting to do it myself and wanting to, you know, be a big kid. And, you know, there's nothing more. I remember the the twins kind of getting upset when I called them baby teeth, being like, no, like I'm a big kid. Like, I don't I don't have baby teeth anymore. And I'm like, I mean, you once you lose them all, you want a baby teeth anymore. So I think it's just interesting. And I'm being really curious to hear from parents in the audience uh, who have made this decision for themselves and their kids, like you're saying, and people who, you know, what what was your losing your baby teeth ritual where you're from if it's not the tooth fairy. But I think ultimately, like most things, it's a way for both parents and kids to kind of ease that transition into adulthood where, you know, my understanding of parenting and, you know, from reading and like knowing people with kids in my life, every milestone is a joy and a loss, isn't it? Like your kid is growing up, they need you less and less, whether it's, you know, rolling over or taking their first steps or going off to school. All of these things, you know, the it's the increased independence and one more step toward a day when, you know, they're not dependent on you for anything at all, even as it is a celebration of, you know, your kid like hitting growth milestones and growing up healthy and safe, which is the goal. So I don't know. It's fascinating. And in some ways feels really kind of discordant with the very like analytical, modern, you know, smartphone using society that we are that every day all around the country, thousands of parents are like, all right, well, go to bed, be a good girl, be a good boy. And maybe the tooth fairy will come. Yeah. So I actually that raises an interesting question to me. Because do you think that by introducing the tooth fairy as a concept, it's parents wanting to kind of cling to their children's youth? Because like, this is a milestone that your child is growing up. And then you're like, well, let me introduce a thing that requires childhood innocence to truly believe in, right? Like, yeah, is this supposed to be something that is maintaining their innocence even as they grow older? It's a good question. I don't know. And I don't know, you know, if I were raising kids, you know, if I would want like what kinds of myths I would introduce and, you know, what kinds like I can imagine both not wanting to kind of puncture their bubble of, you know, not wanting to make them be too rational or too realistic too early. But it's it's an experience I've only had on the one side, which is as the kid thinking, you know, 
excellent. I can get this unpleasant task done and there's a reward for me at the end of the day, which, you know, in some ways you can look at it as, yes, prolonging the innocence. But I think it's also, you know, introducing kind of reward based motivation of saying to the kid, you know, I know it's unpleasant. I know you don't want to do it, but you have to. And, you know, as a reward for your bravery, here's something nice um, that you can get at the end of the day. And I remember watching my siblings go through it and be like, you know, maintaining that story was a way for me to kind of ease their pain in a way where they were uncomfortable. They didn't want to do it or one was jealous of the other because they did or didn't lose their teeth quicker. And I was able to say, you know, I I know it's unpleasant, but just you wait, there will be something at the end of this for you and a way to, you know, who doesn't want to like mollify their kid a little bit or give them a thing to look forward to or a, a way to put a smile on their face if they're going through something difficult. I have total sympathy for that. Yeah. I know there's a lot of parents who Growing up, they're like, oh, yeah, finding out that Santa Claus wasn't real or that the tooth fairy wasn't real. It was like, why are my parents lying to me about these like little silly things? Right. And I'll never tell my children those lies. But you bring up a really valid point as to like why this mythos is important to like learning these like tasks that create your adult personality. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I always forget how practical of a child you are or <laughs> you were, but it, and the practical adult that you became. So I, I think it's really interesting to kind of be like, okay, well, obviously neither of us have children at the moment or, you know, we'll see. I think it's really interesting to look at it and be like, all right, well, what's worth a lie? What's worth like, you know, instilling this belief in my children and what's not? Like, what are the skills that they'll actually learn or the lessons they'll actually learn from telling them this story? Parenting and caregiving is, you know, a million little decisions stacked up on top of each other. It's, you know, is it worth, uh, you know, getting five minutes of silence or stopping the restaurant or the train or the bus from looking at me to like give my kid an iPad, even though I told myself I would never give my kid an iPad, right? Like there's a bajillion things that come to mind. And a lot of the time, you know, your theory can be as noble as you want it to be. And then the reality is, you know, not theory anymore. And you and you have to like make some kind of practical considerations. But there's also a joy in repeating those rituals of your childhood with your kids yeah. um, or with your siblings or, you know, with your nieces and nephews. That's a, a huge part of like the satisfaction of getting older and of, you know, the life cycle. And I was taking care of my grandma recently. Um, she had surgery. I was in a hospital and I was helping her, you know, get to the bathroom, change her sheets and all kinds of things. And she was like, God, I, I hate being dependent on people people like this makes me so upset like I'm you know I'm so I'm struggling with asking you for help and I was like Jim how many times did you wipe my butt and put band-aids on my <laughs> knees and you know uh clean up my spit up when I was a baby you know you uh, you are you are firmly in the positive of your tally if we are tallying things it's one of those things where every milestone is a is a joy and and grief yeah and I think that any time you get to repeat those rituals and make memories to put alongside your ones to do something, you know, with or for a kid or a loved one that echoes or overwrites or complements something that you did, that's part of how we contextualize our lives. And it's why something like the Tooth Fairy, muddled and interesting and varied as its origins are, remains so pervasive, despite kind of all the odds. Yeah. I agree. And I couldn't say it better myself. So, Well, thank you, Julia. And thanks, Sally. That was excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda, for your insight. Thank you, Sally, for your research. Thank you, conspirators, for listening. And next time you find something interesting under your pillow, stay creepy. Stay cool. 
Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.